All right. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this great morning. My name is Chris Pate. If you're new, I'm the lead pastor here and excited to be able to share the word of God with you today. I'm glad, glad, glad you're here. I see a friend over here, Pastor Shad. Come on, Shadrick. Awesome, awesome guy from Austin, Texas. Just wave. Just do this. Just wave. Yes, yes. Uh, if, he talls, you'll, if he stands, you'll be intimidated because he's so tall. So, you know, at least that's just me, maybe. But, uh, hey, we're very glad that you're here. We are concluding our series that we started about five weeks ago called DNA, where we've been talking about the core of the local church, and specifically our church, what our mission is. And after our mission, what's our strategy? Like, what do we go about doing? And in our church, our, our, we're passionate about honoring God and making disciples. We say that disciples are Christ-centered, spirit-empowered, and socially responsible Christians or believers. And so for us, we actually have a strategy on how we want you to go about becoming a disciple. And so we've been talking about this in terms of what's called the four E's. So today we're on the last one, but we'll start with engage. A few weeks ago, we talked about engaging culture and community. And we talked about how we engage them with the gospel, this message of what Christ has done and how he's redeemed us and brought us back into relationship with God through his life, death, burial and resurrection. And so this is our message. We engage the culture and community with that message. And then it's not enough just to hear the message and like a seed just go into the ground, but it needs to be established. And we need to establish now biblical foundations. And for the past eight weeks, we've been going through foundations. We ended uh, yesterday with Victory Day. How many guys got to go to Victory Day? Come on, yeah. Woo! We had an awesome day. People were here literally all day. So church isn't just for Sunday mornings. And so it was a great time for the church to be the church and get in the word together. And we were establishing biblical foundations. Then last week, we talked about now after that, though, you establish, but you want to build something. No one just looks at the foundation of a house that they're building and goes, oh, that's nice. That's cool. Everybody's excited about what it's going to look like in the cabinetry, in the kitchen. No, you want quartz? No, I don't want quartz. I want this. Like whatever you want the house to look like when you're modeling. And so we call this equipping. We want to equip you and tool you to be able to minister ultimately and be a believer that does ministry, as we talked about last week. Today, if you could see it, we're going to finish with empower. And this is empower disciples to disciple. This is where we're ultimately going. I know all of us probably have experienced maybe in your workplace or with a boss or maybe with your parents even uh, a, a workplace, if you will, where you felt not empowered. Anybody, maybe micromanage. Don't raise your hand if your boss is here. That's not smart. If you're on my staff, don't raise your hand. <laughs> she said, in the army. Yeah, yeah, I got you. For us, it's so frustrating when someone is micromanaging you and doesn't empower you. Like, give me the tools to do my job so I can go do my job. Okay? And I see some heads in here like, oh, you're already getting mad. We're going to pray for deliverance here in a second. It's going to work out. But we understand the value of empowerment. We also understand why people don't a lot of times because maybe you're not quite there. You need to be more equipped. We have all of these things going on. But ultimately, the goal of discipleship, the goal of the local church isn't just have a bunch of people that attend. As we like to say, participation is greater than observation. And so we want you to participate and we want you to feel empowered and God wants you to feel empowered. As I was thinking about this concept of empowering, uh, there's a lot of different things you can look at in the scripture, but we're going to look at Matthew chapter 4. Turn your Bibles on, light it up, flip it open, or check out the screens behind us. Matthew chapter 4, 
as kind of our key verse for what we're going to talk about when it comes to discipleship and empowering. Check this out. Matthew 4, 18 says this. Jesus, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers. Jesus liked fishermen. It's just the thing. Jesus, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat, their father, and followed him. Now, as we're talking about empowerment, I'm gonna, we're going to talk about the scripture a little bit. We're going to open up some context and go back to the scripture. But in this scripture, particularly, I don't know, but if you just read at surface level, at face value, I know I did this for years and believed, okay, that what is going on here? Because what I'm seeing is Jesus is just hanging out, walking by the Sea of Galilee on the beach, you know, throwing rocks, skip, skip, skip. And, you know, Jesus, so he could skip it all across the lake, right? And he sees these fishermen. He's like, hey, follow me. And we see the scripture immediately. They're like, all right. And, and then he keeps walking, and he's, now he's got couple guys following him, and he sees another said, hey, and they're there with their dad, and he goes, follow me, okay, and, and I think we kind of picture like, they're like zombies, <sighs> right, just like, just going after, okay, Jesus said it, like Jesus has some kind of spell with his magical words and people just have to do it. And so a lot of times we see that and we read that and we go, well, you know, I'm just kind of waiting for that to happen to me. Like I'll follow Jesus and I'll do what he's called me to do and I'll go with him and become fishers of men and, and be empowered. I'll do that once like something happens where like magical forces come over me and I'm just compelled and I have to do it. One of my favorite Disney movies is, is Lion King, yes, but we're not, we, we, we do Lion King. Aladdin, I love Aladdin. Probably more for the comedic aspect of Aladdin. Real, real fan, okay? We'll see how Will Smith does. Aladdin, it's a good movie. In Aladdin, the antagonist is Jafar, right? And Jafar has these magical abilities to be able to like cast a spell on people. And as long as he can get his little snake staff thing, in their eyes, and they look at it. So don't do that if someone has one of those. That's just the moral of the story. He can hypnotize them into doing whatever he wants. And I think sometimes we, we look at scripture and we read things like that. I mean, they left their dad. Like they're mending nets and dad's like, oh, sons, I love you. He says, follow me. And they're like, right? And he's like, what the heck? I'm like, this is my family, my life. They're gone. What is happening? Because we get this mentality like, they just, just, just some miraculous thing happened. Let me, let me tell you a little bit. There's some context to this that they would be privy to in the first century as they're reading it. Because as we like to say, the Bible is written for you, but it's not written to you. 
So we have to understand the context and what's going on in order to have a story, and it helps us compel our story to where God is calling us and how God calls us. I want to give you a little bit of context, because context is so important. Like right now, if an alien from space came down and came to the USA and came to Texas and just saw what's going on, and watched the news, he would just be like, this is crazy. What's going on with these people? And he doesn't have context as to what has built some of these things, what has come to be as to why we are the way that we are, and the frustrations and the craziness in our culture. And so when we just kind of look at Scripture and go, oh, and then move on, we're doing a disservice to what's actually happening. So what was happening in first century Rome occupied Israel? Israel itself was a nation that was under the oppression of Rome. And literally, even in their coins, they had Caesar with his foot on the neck of an Israelite on their money. So every time they got paid or had to pay taxes, they were reminded who they were under. They, they had this angst and this frustration in being under this nation that was oppressing them, taking their money, their people, their product, everything. And it was a frustrating time for Israel. In fact, it likened to the time in Exodus where Egypt was oppressing them and enslaving them. And in fact, there's a lot of parallels to the two, even though they're thousands of years apart. And the parallel is interesting. For instance, Pharaoh at one point saw that Israel was growing so much, he decided to kill all the firstborn boys, right? And they threw them off a cliff and killed them all. And that's the story of Moses, except for Moses. And, and in first century, we know with the story of Jesus, Herod at the time decided to kill all the firstborn boys. And so they have seen the injustice and the oppression of another nation literally with their foot on their neck. And what they decided to do is similar to what they did in Exodus. They started crying out to the Lord and returning to God and asking for a Messiah, for a Savior. And expecting someone like a Moses character to come up and deliver them from Rome. So at this time, as they're turning back to God, they would have these things called synagogues, which are similar to our church, but way more because they weren't as individualized society as ours. They were all about community. And that's where your community was. You would go to synagogue to learn, to be taught. You'd go to synagogue for all your social uh, ramifications, all the things you want to do for selling. It was in the central part of each city, multiple synagogues all throughout Israel. And so for them, they said, we're going to return back to God. And even with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Pharisees started off really good because they're going, we need to get back to God and get back to the scripture. And so what they did is they developed some schools in order to educate and to turn back to God and get back to the scripture. They said, we've seen this pattern. We believe God's going to deliver us. And here's what we're going to do. And there's kind of three things we know what was happening in this culture. They were educated in the scripture. They were devoted to the scripture like you wouldn't believe. And they were zealous to see God rescue them from Rome at the time. And with all that combined, we see even Josephus, one of the first century historians. So this is extra biblical, but we see some history of what was going on. And he was quoted by saying this, above all else, 
we pride ourselves on educating our children. So we're going to educate our kids. They're going to know, and they're going to stand for God, and we're going to pray, and we're going to get a deliver. And this is what they did. And the way that they did it was they had different types of schools. The first school was called Bet Sefer, which is called House of the Book. So in the Jewish culture of Jesus' day, kids were taught the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, in the local synagogue. Beginning at the age of six years old, so similar similar to us, but it's all the scripture. They had classes five days a week, just like we do today. By the time they were 10 years old, 10 to 12, they had memorized all of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So you could say, okay, little Timmy, Leviticus, and they would just go, right? I can't do that. These classes were called Bet Sefer. Most Jewish kids were pretty well finished with school by the end of this school, the house of the book. After this, they went on to learn the family trade, like fishing, carpentry, or something like that. For those that were advanced and we, you saw a level of understanding and intellect into the scriptures, they would go to the next set of school called Bet Talmud, and it's called the house of learning. Here, they studied all of the Hebrew scriptures, which is our Old Testament, and memorized all of them between the ages of 10 to 14. So the rest of them, all the way to the, the Italians called Malachi. During this time, it's called Malachi. During this time, students also learn the Jewish art of questions and answers. Instead of answering with an answer, like our education, like just reverberate, like just, just throw up the answer, right? They wanted to make sure they were taught the answer and they would ask questions out of it. So they wanted understanding, not just being able to give the, the words and echo the answer. And so they were taught this in this way. Students could demonstrate both their knowledge and their great regard for the scriptures. They were always taught to be curious about the scriptures. And we can see this. You can look how Jesus was described as a young boy in Luke chapter 2, verse 46 and 47. It says this, after three days, they found Jesus in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And so we see right away, Jesus is beyond just the normal. He knew the scriptures. He loved the scriptures. And he's already going back and forth with them and asking questions. They knew it. They loved it. And these were the advanced suits. Now, if you were even advanced beyond that, and there was a, like, there's a scholar, there's so much more within this part. Like, they could potentially be like a rabbi maybe one day. And a rabbi in the culture was like a celebrity. I mean, they had their followers around him, them, and they would go in temple courts and they would teach them. And, and they were the ones learning in order to be just like their rabbi. And this school or this type of learning was called Bet, um, was called bet Midrash which is called a house of study. So if you were smart enough and knew your scriptures well enough to make it this far, you were given the opportunity to go to a rabbi or teacher to seek further education. The rabbi would grill you, ask you all kinds of questions because he was trying to find out if you were good enough to be his student. He wanted to know if you knew enough, but even more importantly, if you could be like him in all areas of life. 
So here's what would happen. If you were advanced to this point, you would be encouraged to pursue a rabbi, maybe even by your family, and you'd be encouraged like, there's that, there's Rabbi Luke, or there's that Rabbi James, or whatever. I, I want to follow that guy. And so that guy wouldn't call you typically. You would have to go to them, go to them just like trying to enter into a college or something, and you would stand with them, and, and they would be with you, and you would say, I want to follow you. And that rabbi, rabbi wouldn't then just go, okay, fine. He would then proceed by asking you all sorts of questions. And he would say things like, quote to me Leviticus. Oh, that's second grade. Boom. Quote to me Deuteronomy. Pfft, easy. Boom. Then he would kind of do the back and forth, which is called remez. Questions back and forth. And he would say things like, okay, so in the book of Amos, there's 17 different phrases that is used in Deuteronomy for prophecy. Give me all 17 of them. And if they were able to then either ask the right question or get to the 17, maybe, which happened most of the time in the culture, they would maybe give 16. And they say, I can't remember the 17th. And the rabbi would typically say, you are very educated. You know a lot. You're great. You love scripture, but you can't be my disciple. You can't follow me. Because somebody is following me, I have to see in them that they know enough, but because as followers of me, they have my name and my reputation on them, they need to be just like me. And I need to be able to see so much potential in them that I say, you are just like me. And I'm calling you to be like me. Not just know what I know, because that's the disciple doesn't want to just know what that rabbi knows, but he wants to be who that rabbi is. That's how it was. So much so they would follow these rabbis into the bathroom because the rabbi would say a special prayer coming out of the bathroom, and they wouldn't want to miss that. They would ask questions like, teach us how to pray like the disciples asked Jesus. Because they weren't just interested like we do in school. I want to know what that professor knows, so to help me. But I want to be like that rabbi. It's a difference. And that rabbi knows that. And so therefore, he's very particular about who he chooses. And so he might say to that person, you can't follow me. Go and learn a trade. Go back, be a carpenter. Go be a fisherman. Go back to your family's house and learn a trade. Now, what's interesting, at the time, is that it frames now what was happening with Jesus coming on the scene. And I want to, with, with this concept and this idea, I want to reread Matthew 4, and then we're going to open up a little bit in this context. Matthew 4, 18 through 22, let's reread it. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. What could we probably gather about them in this culture then? They've gone through a school. They knew the scripture. We could maybe even assume, maybe they had grown and wanted to know the scripture. I would think Jesus would call somebody that at least has that desire. I know me, when I'm looking for a staff, I'm not just looking for competency, but I'm looking for character, right? I'm looking for eagerness because I could grow your competency, like, that's easy. But if you don't have the character to be able to handle it, and you don't have the chemistry to work with people, yeah, that's, the, that's a problem. And so I think they probably wanted to learn, and maybe they had even gone to another 
rabbi before and been like gone through the questions and answer. And he said, go ply your trade, go home, go be a fisherman. This isn't for you. You're not good enough. So we see they're fishermen. And he, Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Then he keeps walking. Sees two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father mending the nets, and he called them immediately. They left their boat and their father and followed him. Okay, now, so listen. Now this frames it quite a bit different. There was some willfulness and some volition behind them following him. And listen, at the time, and we could see as we read the scripture, Jesus wasn't just like some random dude with a beard, and they're like, yeah, I'll follow that guy. At this point, we know Jesus had been feeding thousands. He had healed people, cast out demons. He's doing all these miracles. He's speaking in all of these synagogues, saying things like, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and I am here to set the captives free. So he's a rabbi. He's 30, which is about the age you had to be in order to be able to be one. And he's at this place walking, and they know who Jesus is. They've heard about him. They've seen him do amazing things. And he's probably like the celebrity of celebrity rabbis. Get this guy. And yet he does something different than any other rabbi. Other rabbis would have people come to him because of his credentials and ask if they could follow him. He says, hey, you follow me. Which later he says, you have not chosen me. I chose you. And Jesus comes on the scene. And this is why they're going, hey, dad. Right? Like, bye. I'm out of here. And I don't think their dad was going, what? I think their dad's going, man, go. That's Jesus. Like, wow. Go. He's like, I, I, I'll make a couple more kids, but go. <laughs> like, I can do that. But see, this frames it quite a bit different because now this is a privilege and you understand why they would go, I'm out of here, man. And you might understand again how they might have felt before that. I'm fishing, I'm doing my thing, but I'm not good enough for that rabbi. Maybe not even John the Baptist, even though I have friends that are in his discipleship group. I'm not good enough. But Jesus, we, we all know this. I remember grade school, man, playing kickball. You ever been the last one picked? I have. That's not fun. You got people like Brando. Let's, let's kickball, right? Come on. And I'm over here. And when you're the last one, I mean, it's like Charlie Brown. <laughs> And, and, and people don't even say your name. When you're the last one, they're just like, <laughs> right? That dude, fine. No, Sometimes that happens, fine, right? You're just like, okay, I'm excited to play on your team. And then you probably proceed to lose because you're not that great anyway. And so not only do you feel like a loser, no one wants me, despised and rejected, I got it. I, I don't feel empowered to do anything. In fact, I feel disempowered, so I'm not giving my best effort. Like, you didn't even really want me. I'm just kind of along for the ride because I have to play. Now, in grade school, 
I felt that before. And then I was about a mediocre athlete. I started growing up. But my best friend, I'm smart. He moved into town and I started making friends with him. And he ends up, this is the dude that like came out of the womb with like a six pack. Like he was like doing jump rope with the umbilical cord or something inside. I don't know what happened. But he's one of those guys that just like, cat, 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 just strong, like just not even fair. First time I remember being in seventh grade, first time we lifted weights in junior highs. Junior high started seventh grade for me. And we lifted weights and he's already in there just like 45, pound, 45 plates on each side with the 45 first time he's ever even tried. That's, a, that's, that's good. Never lifted before in his life. And I'm just sitting here like the bar, like maybe a broom, <laughs> right? Good broom, right? Like not even fair. But see, I was really good friends with this guy. So we would always play together, baseball, basketball, football. We were always playing. And we would play pickup games. Because we were really good friends, he would choose me. And guess what? I would win. And it was so good to be chosen. You know what it does to somebody when somebody says, I want you on my team? You know what that does to somebody? That's the beginning of empowerment. Do you know what happened with the disciples here? Jesus didn't just say, yeah, you can learn from me. He said, hey, come on, you can be like me. The empowerment that comes with something like that is like nothing you can imagine. You see something in me. You believe in me. Wow. Maybe maybe I have something to offer. Maybe I can do something. Here's what I was thinking about out of this, though, because as we're talking about empowerment and ultimately empower people to make disciples, you have to be a disciple to make a disciple. But I was thinking about why we don't do this. Why do we not make disciples? And I'm just going to give you two basic things. Number one, why do we not make disciples? We don't realize what Jesus has called us to. Like whether it's through ignorance or wrong understanding let me say this, after everything you just learned in context and what Jesus was calling, you can never say, you, you, or you can say, I don't want to be a disciple, but you can never say, I can't be a disciple. Because here's the deal. I love the story of Peter walking on water because you get this picture. They're on the Sea of Galilee. They're struggling. There's a storm. All of a sudden, Jesus is walking just casually like, no, oh, no, chilling. And they're like, oh my God, wait, is that a ghost? They're freaking out. It's a ghost, it's a ghost. No, wait, that looks like Jesus. Like he's got that wavy hair, that's, that's Jesus. And, and Peter goes like this. Lord, if that's you, call me to come out to you. Now we make fun of Peter, you know the story, and he falls and all that. But this dude walked on water. Like, you haven't done that. Okay, I promise. Jesus says, listen, Jesus doesn't say, bro, you can't handle this, right? He's over there breakdancing on the water. Like, you, you can't. You don't have this skill. What does Jesus say? This is interesting. He said, yeah, it's me. Come on. Wow. What? Why would Peter even think he could do something like that? 
See, in our thinking, like, that's Jesus, and, or, or that's like the, the, whatever professor you love, or whatever business person is like your idol, like they, but I, I don't know about me, I'm watching them walk on water, and I'm amazed, and I'm inspired, but Jesus is like, no, come on, and Peter had this audacity to be like, okay, you called me to follow you, you're on the water, let's go, and he starts to do, and he's doing it. But then what happens as the wind and the waves start coming, he starts focusing on those and he starts to sink and he cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus casually, come on, man, lifts him up. And he doesn't like pat him and love on him. What does he say to him? If you remember, he says, you have little faith. Ouch. You have little faith. And he said this, why do you doubt? Now, a lot of us would interpret that then and we would add the word, which is not in the scripture, me. Why would you doubt me? But see, that's false. Peter wasn't doubting Jesus. He's watching Jesus on water. He's seen him feed 5,000. Like, he's been watching. We don't know how long. He's like, yeah, I'm not doubting you. And Jesus isn't saying, why did you doubt me? He says, why did you doubt you? When you're fixed on me, you can do the things that I do. But see, you got your eyes off me and it caused you to doubt yourself. Now, this isn't a self-help talk, but it is a talk in the sense of this. If God is calling, calling you, he's asking you to follow him and saying, you can be like me. Do you not realize that's the call? I think so many times we're calling and we're just like begging people, please, like Jesus is teary-eyed, just like, please follow me. Like, like really, like I promise this is a good thing. Like, come on, begging us. And yet the disciples were like, oh, wow, look at this calling. See, I think we don't do it because we don't fully realize what it is we're being called to. We're being called to Jesus. We're being called to a relationship with him. And he is calling us to be like him. Wow. I'll give up anything. I don't even care. This isn't just a call to some set of rules. It's a call to a person. It's a call to a relationship. And it's God calling and choosing. If you're in this room and God has called you and you've confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart according to Romans 10, 8, and 9. It says you are saved, which means you are called, which means Jesus is saying you can be like me. Not that you're gonna be God, but you can be like Jesus in the way that he is because that's the goal is to be conformed in the image of Jesus, to be like him. And he would say this, my goal it's not to do my own will, but to do what my father tells me to do. Now you get to join Jesus in worshiping God, the father. And listen, this is an amazing thing. But I think there's another reason why we don't do this. And I would say, number two, we love something else more than Christ. Now this is basic, but Jesus puts it this way. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, a lot of us read that backwards, like, okay, 
if you obey me, it proves that you love me. That's not what he said. He said, if you love me, you'll obey me. Like you'll keep my commandments. And, and we get this. 100% we get this. Let me give you an example. I, I'm a Houston Texans fan. I like the Texans. Although it's hard. Better than the Cowboys. But I like the Texans. And I've gone to a few games. And it's crazy when you go to the games, right? Because there's some interesting characters. I mean, there's some serious worship going on, right? You, you think it's weird that like in the temple they would sacrifice animals. What are we doing football games? <laughs> There's a lot of barbecue happening, right? There's a lot of pregame. You got your screen. You got people that have like the whole thing and the screens and they're in it. They're devoted. And listen, if you ask them to do something else, their, their wife's like, hey, do the dishes. Oh, you know, but they say, it's time for a game. You're up and you're at them. You ask you to, ask you to do something else, but six o'clock tea time for golf. You're there, man. Why? Why? Listen. Because you love it, it's easy to obey. You love it, it's not even that much of a sacrifice because you love it. That makes sense. We get that. In Christianity, we can tell when things are just so hard to do for God that our love is misplaced in something else. And Jesus would say, you understand this, if you love me, you'll obey me. If your desire is really for me. But again, if we don't understand what we're being called to, not just a set of rules, but a God who looks at us and says, I choose you. Like, I want you. And I think you could be like me. This is why the end of the gospels Peter's sad because he had denied Jesus three times and Jesus comes back walking on the Sea of Galilee again and they're fishing if you know the story the disciples just didn't know what to do Jesus is dead everything they've lived for they thought he was going to come back like Moses and restore Israel didn't happen. You've ever been disappointed with God? You've never had this kind of disappointment. They go back. What do I do? What do I do now? I'm just going to go be a fisherman. And they're fishing. And Jesus yells out. And they recognize immediately it's Jesus. Peter jumps out of the boat. They meet him. They start eating. And Jesus pulls Peter aside and he says, do you love me, Peter? And Peter, I can imagine he's crying because he knows he's disappointed. He knows he's denied his rabbi, the one who called him and said, you could be like me. Any other rabbi would have said, you're done. And Peter says, you know, I love you. Like, you know everything, you're God. You know, I love you. And he says, feed my sheep. And he does this three times. He says, Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Feed my little lambs. And what is he saying each time? I think there's a reason why there's three. There's a lot to this, but there's a reason why there's three. Jesus, Peter denied him three times and Jesus came back. 
and brought him back in three times. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Less. You know what he's saying? He's saying, follow me, follow me, follow me. You can be like me. You can be like me. You can be like me. And you forgot who you were. You forgot what you were called to. And your love got misplaced because you thought you were called to a political figure, but you were called to God. Listen, if the disciples were willing to leave everything, even their father, because they understood who Jesus was as a rabbi and thinking he's a political figure, now at this point, Peter realizes this is God in the flesh. And God is calling me. I'm done. Why do anything else? Why give my heart, my devotion to anything else that's just going to enslave me? and entrap me and cause me to work off some sort of sacrificial system that could be your spouse, that could be your workplace, some kind of sacrificial system is being built in that says you have to earn it in order to get. It's a transactional relationship. And Jesus says, I choose you. You can be like me. I want you. Why would we want anything else? Why would we choose to love anything else when a God like that has chosen to love us? not just speak it, but demonstrate it. This is the message of empowerment. Now, I want to be a disciple. And as a disciple, I feel empowered by God. And now I want to go make more disciples and call them to him as well. Come, follow Jesus. Follow me as I follow him. This empowerment has to come with a mindset what a privilege it is to be called. Do you feel that calling? Do you sense that? Do you know that? Is there a love that is misplaced and God's saying, make me your first love? And you'll never understand freedom and peace like that. Why don't you stand to your feet? And we're gonna worship. We're gonna pray. We're gonna sing this song, So Will I. And what I want is this song to be our altar. God, if the stars are made to worship, so will I. If the mountains cry out, so will I. God, because of what you've done, and you're calling me, what is my response but to worship and to say, so will I. If you'll sacrifice, so will I. If you'll reach, go go out and run after the lost, so will I. Because I'm following you because you chose me. I didn't just choose you. Let's worship and let's pray together.